0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Arnab Datta Roy, an assistant professor of world literature and post colonial theory at Florida Gulf Coast University. Today I have the great privilege and honor to speak with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Mukti Laki Mangaram, who will be speaking about her fascinating new book from Bloomsbury Publishing, Freedom Inc. Gendered Capitalism in New Indian Literature. Dr. Mukti Mangaram is Associate Professor of English at Rutgers University. She holds a PhD in English from Cornell an MPhil in Criticism and Culture from Cambridge, and a BA in English and History from the University of York. Her scholarship and teaching draw on the various historical and literary cultures she came in contact with during her childhood in Belgium, annual visits to family in India, research trips to South Africa, and editorial internships at the Feminist Press at CUNY. These experiences have produced a fascination for various languages and narrative traditions. Her first book, Literatures of Liberation, Non-European Universalism and Democratic Progress, Ohio State University Press 2017, explores local radical universalisms in Indian and South African literatures as they are put to work towards democratic change. Uh, I want to add a personal note that this book was so helpful for my own research when I was writing my dissertation in 2019, so I'm forever grateful for that. Uh, So, going on, her second book, uh, which we'll be talking about today, uh, Freedom, Inc., Gendered Capitalism in New Indian Literature and Culture, extends this argument to consider how such lineages of liberation Still present in radical texts, including the Dalit memoir film, the realist tradition, uh, the realist novel, continue to posit fuller notions of autonomy and agency in response to neoliberal ideas of uh, freedom. She has published widely on post colonial literatures and cultures in general, uh, in journals including ELH, Diacritics. Aerial Journal of Commonwealth and Postcolonial Studies, and Safundi. Mukti, welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me.
2: Thank you so much, Arnab. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: So let us begin. So tell us a little bit about your academic journey. What inspires you to do what you do as a scholar, a writer, uh, as a teacher?
2: That's a great question. And I guess I'm going to start by answering that in personal terms uh, with a bit of a biographical account of myself. So I'm of Indian origin, but I was born in Belgium. I am still a Belgian citizen as well as an American citizen, and I've lived in Belgium, the U.S. and the U.K., and although I was born in Belgium and spent the first 18 years of my life there, I often felt like an outsider. And this is because the neighborhood in which I lived was marked with Flamsblock Block posters. Flamsblock Block is a right-wing uh, party uh, known for popularizing anti-immigrant sentiments. Um, when I got on the bus, I knew I was different. I felt it. I felt that I was the other. I was not a local And um, I now live in multicultural, multiracial Philadelphia, where I don't feel like such a minority anymore, because black and brown skinned people are everywhere. But even though white skinned people are not an obvious majority in the city, whiteness as a structure of dominance is still prevalent. And I'm continually reminded of this when people ask me where I'm from, and they're not satisfied with any answer until I say, hey, you know, I'm originally Indian, and then the questioning stops. (laughs) So I actually, at that moment, I long to tell them that I'm Indian, but that I'm also not, that I'm Belgian, but that I'm also not, that I'm American, but that I'm also not. I am, and I long to be existentially universal, Right. Which means that I long to be able to be free to occupy all of the locals that make up my existence simultaneously all at once. And however, I feel like I long to embrace the whole of who I am and can be instead of being reduced to only one of the various particulars that have shaped me. So, this is a longing to belong to the world and to lay claim to it in all of its beauty and its wonder and its complexity without having to give up any part of myself. And I think that it is this longing which manifests itself in much of my research and my teaching. So, in my research, I would say that this longing for a world that contains many worlds, manifests in the theory of contextual universalisms, which investigates local ideas of freedom and equality that try to locate people and communities in all of their particularity as belonging to a wider horizon of humanity, right? So it's a way to ally the universal and the particular without arguing that they're somehow um, the opposites of each other. Only various particulars can give you a conception of the universal. Um, And I do this by arguing that ideas of freedom and equality, which define human beings by what they have in common, and which do so from the various contexts in which they arise, are key to understanding how the particular and the universal are in fact not opposed to each other. And I make this argument through a reading of various folk stories and proverbs and protest poetry and novels. And I argue that these texts and the context that they come from, and the ideas of freedom and equality that are coming out of these contexts are not just the legacy of the Western world you know the Western world is is recognized as through the enlightenment tradition where the um, where the conception of human rights comes from right um, but I argue that you can find, cognate concepts of freedom and equality in medieval anti-caste movements in India, in the South African anti-apartheid struggle, which use Zulu ethical philosophies to make a claim for popular sovereignty. So in this framework, the Dalit woman and the poor black laborer can be just as much theorists of freedom and agency as a white European person. Now, in my teaching, I try to create a world with many worlds within it by seeking to show my students at Rutgers that they too can lay claim to the world without sacrificing any part of themselves, because they're not reducible to one or more of their racial or cultural identities, even as they are shaped by those identities. And this is this, I think, is is especially important to me as somebody who teaches at Rutgers, because Rutgers has a student population that is majority non-white, over sixty-five percent are racial and ethnic minorities and a huge proportion of which are first generation college students, right? So if these students can understand themselves and their, their um, identities as not some essentialized, you know, singular homogenous thing, but rather as an inventory of traces that the past has left on the present, then I feel like I've done my job. So to give you an example, in a class last semester, a student was delighted to read the book *Coolie Woman, which is about a Guyanese women's quest to discover her ancestral roots in India. And like the writer of this book, my student was also a descendant of an Indian woman who left India for for British Guyana in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to work as an indentured plantation laborer. So through texts like these, I teach identity as the outcome of complex histories and changing material circumstances, not as a static essence um, that belongs to just one place in the
1: globe. That is fascinating. Uh, I, I can like totally see the transition. Like, I, I, one thing that particularly stuck uh, to me and I found fascinating was the phrase that you use, existentially universal right? Like existential kind of like presupposes like ground particularities yet like like you do not forget your existential like um, embodiment, existential like existence uh, while at the same time you have an eye towards the broader realities and and, and, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you so much for that wonderful answer. Uh, so, uh, So talking a little more about that, we can like explore a little more about that in this question that I'm gonna ask. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your new book, Freedom, Inc. Uh, um, And I'm gonna ask you to, if you were to identify, say the two most important interventions of this book, what would they be?
2: Okay, thank you, Hanab. So I guess the first intervention Carries on from the argument of my first book that I just described, the argument about contextual universalisms, that universalisms like freedom exist in many different forms and that they arise in different contexts in response to material, social and economic conditions, right? So, so my Freedom, Inc., carries on this argument, but expands it by arguing that in India, and indeed in much of the world, one version of freedom has become dominant. One contextual universalism of freedom has become dominant. And it's become dominant to the extent that it's become globalized. And that idea of freedom is what I'm calling freedom, Inc. And I look at a particular instantiation of that idea as it manifests in the Indian context after the early 1990s, which is when the Indian economy was first liberalized. Now, what is Freedom, Inc.? Freedom, Inc. is an idea of freedom in which it's possible to achieve complete autonomy from one's own restrictive life circumstances solely through one's own actions and agency. So within this discourse, you can be free from caste if you just become a Dalit entrepreneur. You can be free from patriarchy if you just become a woman who works for a wage. If You can become free from poverty if you become a man who embraces an enterprising masculinity. Um, all of this is possible if you just embrace free market capitalism. And since the 1990s, when the Indian economy was liberalized, these dreams of freedom have been marketed to Indians by the government, by popular culture, by big corporations, and by international organizations like the World Bank, to the extent where popular academic and social Indian commentators like Gurchar and Das characterizes India's a moment of economic liberal liberalization as India's true moment of independence, as opposed to India's independence from British colonialism, right? So that gives you an idea about how far this I, hegemonic idea of freedom inc has seeped into the into the ether of Indian consciousness. And I chart the dominance of freedom inc. Um, it, and and I, I this is the first intervention of the book. I chart it and I historicize it. And what I argue is that it comes out of the notion of the autonomous self in the Enlightenment liberal tradition. So one of the key thinkers of this concept was John Stuart Mill, who argued that one's freedom was a private arena within which that individual could experiment with his or her, her own lifestyle provided that one's choice caused no harm to others. So the freedom to do that was absolute. And within this framework, the boundaries between the self and the other are very clear and distinct. The self is not envisioned as being interdependent on other people or interweaved within the social context in which that person becomes a a person. Instead, the decision-making self is completely autonomous, right? It's a, it's a it's an idea of absolute autonomy, that this self operates independently of the context that shape him and within which he acts. And in the 19th and 20th century, this lineage of freedom takes on the form of the even more rigid individualism of Homo economicus. Homo economicus, as Foucault has theorized, is individual as capital, right? And in this conception, freedom has mutated to mean an individual acting alone by making competitive rational choices at nodal points along their life journey towards the end of generating an income stream. And I critique this notion of Freedom Inc. by arguing that its idea of absolute autonomy ignores the way that freedom and agency arise out of the grounds through which one is constituted caste patriarchy and other social forms of inequality do not miraculous miraculously fade away just because one decides to become an entrepreneur one can only act within and through those contexts right so to give you an example um Within the discourse of Freedom Inc. in India, it's often claimed that um, in order to be free, women should be working for a wage within the global economy. But, and a lot of people don't realize that this is the case, since the 1990s when the Indian economy was liberalized, the rate of female participation in the labor economy has actually declined precipitously. So the, the proportion of women working in India has declined since the liberalization of the Indian economy. And a lot of social sociologists say that this is because patriarchal attitudes about women's place in the home have been strengthened alongside a declining of opportunities in the job market for Indian women, right? So Freedom Inc. is dominant, but it is dominant because it ignores the actual conditions on the ground, and even makes those conditions worse. Patriarchy becomes strengthened rather than um, alleviated in some form. So that's the first intervention, and and I know that was a very long intervention, you know. But the uh, the critique and historicization of Freedom Inc. within the Indian context. Secondly, the second strand of the book. Um, that runs through each chapter is that it's possible to find fuller freedoms in reaction to Freedom, Inc. through an exploration of the other contextual universalisms of freedom that try to reimagine freedom um, in a more fuller way. Right. So, for instance, I in my chapter on the Dalit memoir, I talk about Freedom Inc. as being manifested in the discourse of Dalit capitalism. You can escape caste by becoming a Dalit entrepreneur. But I show in that that in response to this instantiation of Freedom Inc. The Dalit memoir launches and harnesses other contextual universalisms of freedom, including Ambedkar's idea of freedom as arising within a society where the interests of caste and gender minorities form part of the common interest, right? Or Nehru's idea of freedom as secular democracy is also very much alive within realist writing. So, Although Freedom Inc. has buried these other lineages of freedom, they're still very much present within texts like the realist novel and the Dalit memoir. And these literary forms of the present, I'm arguing, are an invaluable resource for charting out and following alternative maps of freedom.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and 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 th- thank you for clarifying that, like how freedom itself can get uh, can get, uh, positioned within like different contexts, right? One, like a very like a, a, a capitalist kind of a, a setting. And, and then there's like a counterculture through which like uh, there are competing... Kinds of freedoms that are like generated in literary works that can counter that as well. So, I mean, uh, clearly, uh, uh, eh, eh, from what uh, I understand, that you're looking at a wide range of literatures in this book. Uh, So my next question would then be uh, 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 particularly focused on uh, the idea of new Indian literatures, because that is something that's in your title as well, right? So what kind of literatures, literary canons from the subcontinent are you drawing attention to? Uh, and, And when I say canons here, I'm thinking both of literary canons, but also I'm thinking of geopolitical categories as well—global, diasporic, regional, or any other categories from from those broad classificatory like ideas. Um, so, what is so new about these literatures that you are exploring and writing about in this book?
2: Great question, Arnab. So. If we think about Freedom, Inc. as something relatively new as arising in the early 1990s after the Indian economy gets liberalized, then you can think about the ground within which that idea is represented and interrogated as being literature. And this is what makes the literatures after the 1990s new in the sense that The idea of the self and its freedom has undergone a sea change since the early 1990s as a result of economic liberalization. And the the, um, broader category of Indian literature responds to this by making this idea its chief concern. Now, If you understand what Indian literature looked like before the 1990s, then then this sea change is easier to understand. So previously, the idea of India is defined through the Nehruvian aspiration of a democratic nation in which everyone could realize their individual freedom, regardless of their social and religious identities. And I think it's important to say that this is an aspiration rather than a reflection of what's actually on in India, right? Um, But within that idea of India, the self's freedom is very closely related to the freedom of the nation. So only when India becomes free from colonialism, and free from all of the kinds of religious divisions and caste divisions that continue to haunt it, can the individual be free. And literature is the place where this idea and this nexus between the individual and the nation is mapped out and explored, right? So think of canonical texts like Midnight's Children, where the free self and the free nation are born at the same time, right? Or of novels of Rohinton Mystery or Arundhati Roy, in which the democratic failure of the nation state is represented through an inability for individuals to live liberated and fully realized lives. So the new era of Indian literature after the 1990s is new because it shows how this previous idea of India has been reversed after economic liberalization. So post-1990s literature and culture shows um, that since the individual is imagined as being absolutely autonomous, the individual's freedom no longer depends on the nation's freedom. Rather, the individual's self-liberation is now imagined independently of the state of the nation. And once you have this kind of notion of the autonomous entrepreneurial individual, then that individual's success at embodying autonomy is measured by how far he or she furthers the nation's place within the global economy. So instead of the nation's freedom coming first which then which then creates the the grounds to which the individual realizes their freedom now you have the individual is always already autonomous and free and when they perform that freedom through entrepreneurship then they lead to the freedom of the nation and what does the freedom of the nation mean here it means that the nation is ascendant within a global free market economy right so These novels contain models of the investor citizen and the individual as entrepreneur. And this individual serves as a symbolic index for the nation's status in the global economy. So you have, after the 1990s, novels like Chetan Bhagat's popular fiction and this huge increase in self-help, which is representing this idea of absolute autonomy. But in response... You also have novels like *The White Tiger* by Arvind Adiga um, that are responding to and interrogating this shift in the idea of India, right? So I mentioned White Tiger, but you also have novels by Manju Kapoor, you've got Dalit life writing, and these latter texts are trying to say that there's no such thing as absolute autonomy. To be free, you cannot only lean in, to to speak of an example from the US context, Um, you can't only rely on your own actions. Rather, whether or not you're able to enact freedom, very much depends on the grounds through which you achieve personhood, right? A simpler way of saying this is that to be free of caste or patriarchy, it's not enough to simply become a Dalit entrepreneur or to begin working for a wage. Rather, the social structures within which you live and work have to be reformed to allow that agency, so many of the new texts I'm looking at that represent and interrogate Freedom, Inc. are simultaneously global, diasporic, and regional. And the fact that all three of these vectors serve as exploratory and representational mediums for the discourse of Freedom, Inc. shows you just how dominant globally, as well as locally, this discourse has become. So local, regional, and global book economies all deal with this discourse. And the photograph on the book cover captures, I think, this this fact, because it's a photograph of a young man selling pirated books at a traffic signal. And his pile of books includes titles like the Steve Jobs Way, or Arvind Adiga's and Chetan Bhagat's novels. And these are texts that are very different, but Many of them circulate globally, regionally, and locally all at once. And all of them thematically relate to the idea of freedom, Inc. And even the Dalit memoirs I look at, write about Ambedkar's contextual universalisms of freedom, but they do so in English, which is a pan-Indian vernacular, as Akshya Saxena has argued, and they do it in a form that circulates locally as well as globally. So their authors, Shilpa Raj and Yashika for instance, spent much of their formative years in India, but they now live and work in the U.S., and they write for both audiences. So this simultaneously local, regional, and diasporic reach, I think, is an apt metaphor for the way that Freedom, Inc. circulates as a neoliberal discourse into the very depths of the social order.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, I, I do have a follow-up to that question, actually. So um, you you spoke of uh, figures uh, like Nehru, from Nehru to uh Arundhati Roy, right? And then and, and we are talking about freedoms. And I think like there are parts where you also like speak about unfreedoms, uh, especially thinking about Amartya Sen's idea of unfreedom. So uh, I, I wanted to ask, how do you respond to the kind of attack that we have seen recently on ideas of Nehru or like recent most recently against attacks against Arundhati Roy where the Indian government is now like planning to prosecute uh, Arundhati Roy for something that she said like 13 years ago uh, so what is your response to that
2: yeah that's that's a great question arnab well you know i think that the reason why a writer like Arundhati Roy is under attack for supposedly being anti-national is precisely because she points out that the idea of freedom that the Indian government, our our right-wing Hindu government right now um, proclaims, and it's very much a kind of neoliberal idea of freedom, does not capture the best interests of the people that live in India. It's a dangerously majoritarian notion of freedom that leaves out the right to self-determination of the people that actually live in the areas that India controls. So I feel that literature and writers that are continually interrogating this link between what the nation is and then what the individual freedom is, um, are under threat precisely because what they say is so threatening to the Mm.
1: authorities.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: So um, uh, you just spoke about so eloquently about like so many different kinds of literature. So I want us to like dig a le- little deeper there, but from a slightly different angle. So the research of your book highlights an attention to a wide range of genres of literature, right? Like you just mentioned the self Help genre, uh, connected with that the bildungsroman, um, uh, the life-writing genre, like subgenre, uh, the realist novel, right? And 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 within these genres, you look at so many works ranging from uh, Adiga's White Tiger to uh, Yashika that's coming out as a Dalit, uh, coming out as Dalit, right? So can you comment on how you approach genres? in relation to the broader discourses of freedom?
2: Great question, Arnob. So if you accept my claim that literature becomes the grounds through which Freedom Inc. is both represented and interrogated, then it it makes sense to ask why literature, right? What 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 kind of form, what literary forms are best suited to this kind of representation and interrogation. And I argue that some genres naturalize the idea of absolute autonomy. Versus other kinds of genres that challenge such an idea. So, if we think about what the idea of absolute autonomy involves, that individual actors have complete power over their circumstances and that they're free to mold themselves into revenue streams, and that they're completely certain genres have forms that do some work towards naturalizing those assumptions.
1: Okay, so thank you for that response. Uh, so uh, so I want to dig a little deeper into like this idea of new literatures, but through a slightly different angle now. Uh, so the research in your book highlights an attention to a wide range of genres of literature. I mean, of course, including the Bildens Roman, the self help genre that you just mentioned the life writing genre so uh, and 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 you you examine a range of works in the context of these genres like I'm thinking of like Arvind Adiga's White Tiger to that's coming out as Dalit. So can you comment on how you approach genre in relation to the broader discourse yes, of freedom? Yes, absolutely.
2: Thank you, Arna. Great question. So what I'm arguing is that there are certain genres that naturalize the idea of absolute autonomy versus other genres that challenge such an idea, that certain forms are particularly well-suited to conveying and naturalizing the idea of absolute autonomy that you have in Freedom, Inc. You know, the idea that individual actors have complete power over their circumstances, that they're free to mold themselves into revenue streams, that they are completely unimpacted by the social constraints and obstacles that they face. And the genres that I I identify as 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 doing this is the self help genre, but also the popular affirmative bildungsroman, which has a coming of age kind of form that charts the way that an individual ascends the social order in a way that miraculously elides the many obstacles that they face in the process. And then therefore, they're able to realize their agency unimpeded and embody the promises of neoliberal freedom. And in contrast, I argue that the texts that are countering this myth are more likely to be literary and realist and to adapt and modify the building's Roman form. Because they, in, in, in a particular way, um, through storytelling, narrate an individual's actions in terms of their relationship to their social world. They throw into relief the shaping power of context, circumstance, and relationships on individual co-constitution and decision making. And they therefore present what Charles Taylor calls a life in story, rather than a life that somehow floats above the story, right? What is a life in story? The life in story is a plot structure that narrates a life by organizing and clarifying which constraints and circumstances bring human beings to the particular junctures that they face, and that influence their actions. So these texts are likely to portray agency as arising out of the social and material grounds through which a person becomes themselves. The modified Bildungsroman often does this by showing that the individual can only exist within an uneasy relationship with the larger social structures that shape them, like caste and gender, because these structures as they are do not make room for minorities like themselves. So texts like Yashika Dutt's coming out as Dalit adapts and modifies the romance coming-of-age structure by bringing into relief the restrictive social structures that shape her agency and arguing that she cannot, in fact, be free unless the larger society is reformed to accept her coming out as Dalit, right? Um, in another example, I look at Vikram Seth's A Suitable Boy and Manju Kapo's Difficult Daughters as realist novels that precede Freedom Inc. in some way. And as a result, they foreground the way that even romantic love, um, which is often the fictional ground through which one enacts or confirms one's individual freedom, can't operate independently of religious or familial uh, or social mores, right? So in A Suitable Boy, the main character Lata is looking for somebody to marry and she falls in love with the Muslim boy Kabir. But the post partition context of the novel does not allow peaceful romantic relationships between Hindus and Muslims. Lata can't hope to change these constraints or to simply marry Kabir anyway. So Seth depicts her choice to eventually marry a Hindu boy as the product of the array of constraints that society presents her with, right? And this is the grounds for agency. So it's not that Lata isn't free to marry, isn't acting freely when she marries the Hindu boy instead of the Muslim boy. She is acting freely in the sense that any free action is always the result of the context through which that action is shaped. But this doesn't mean that we should accept Lata's choice as being the choice that is emblematic of the wider range of freedoms that could have been, right? So Seth, you know, has this this very... um, this, he ends the novel with this, this note of pathos in which they're getting married to the sound of the Gayatri mantra and that Gayatri mantra invokes memories of the murderous rampaging Hindu mob um, from earlier in the story, right? So what is the message there that... This is not a celebration of Lata's kind of freedom. It's simply suggesting that the social context of religious strife has to be reformed before Lata can enact her agency to marry a Muslim boy. And that would realize a fuller freedom, right? So in other words, these realist novels, these adapted Bildungsroman are are interested in the grounds through which certain kinds of agency become possible. And they portray the individual as constituted through those grounds. Um, these genres question self helps emphasis on being able to do anything and be anyone as long as you lean in or possess enough grit. And they do that by focusing on the conditions through which one becomes an agent.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. I I, I do have... A follow up question on this, uh, especially thinking about genres, Bilden's Roman, and the idea of universalism, right? I, because um, uh, Bilden's Roman was originally like a very local European genre, right? Like Goethe and like. Um, but then now, I mean, it seems that it has been more widely and globally adapted and reimagined, but still there is the question, right, right? Uh, like, is it, uh, like, are the post-colonial authors that are, um, like, that, that, that are writing within the genre, uh, are they, like, imitating the West, or are they, like, going beyond the, because... Uh, the 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 formations of the Western, uh, buildings Roman right because I mean after all like the buildings Roman, is talking about uh is about like rite of passage which is not a European thing itself so can you comment on that and how you like tackle that in relation to ideas of universalism which is central to yeah, both yeah. your that's books. Yeah that's such a
2: great thoughtful question Arnab, so. The Bildungsroman arises as a response to capitalism. And this is, of course, the famous argument that critics like Ian Watt and Franco Moretti um, tell us, right? That the individual, the individuation that happens within the Bildungsroman is a product of a particular European historical moment tied to the prevalence of capitalist subjectivity, right? But capitalism was never just European. Capitalism is a global form. It comes into being through its relationship with, with processes of primitive accumulation in the colonies. And along with that process, the Bildungsroman arises in places other than Europe in response, just as in Europe, it is also crafting a response. To capitalism, right? So I would not say that somehow the European Buildings Roman is an original, right? And then I would also say that the form of the Buildings Roman is is I think more interrogative in the colonies than it is in Europe, precisely because capitalism does not just come to the colonies as a kind of vehicle of individual freedom, as it as it is shown in many European buildings, Roman, to be doing. Um, it's always a colonialist. Capitalism is always a colonialist tool, a colonialist system, right? So I would say that a lot of the Individual Bildungsroman uh, uh, in the colonies are even more suited to being contesting of the social order, to be combative about the social order. They don't as easily fall into the form of the affirmative Bildungsroman, as Joseph Slaughter would argue, where they're interested in naturalizing a larger hegemonic social order. I look at Bildungsroman that are dissensual, again, to use Slaughter's term, where what is being pointed out in adaptations of the Bildungsroman form is precisely the disjuncture between um, what the universal rights due individuals are supposed to be versus the way that those rights are not, in fact, being extended to certain subjects, right? so. In my reading of Yashika Dutt's coming out as Dalit and also Shilpa Raj's, the elephant chaser's daughter, there are many, many moments when the individuals speak in terms of the rights that they are due, but they do so to note the discrepancy between the way that those rights are articulated and their own social context that refuse them those rights. Right? So... In doing so, they craft a larger horizon of universality that is supposed to include them, but doesn't. They don't dispose of the idea of universality by saying, oh, this is always an impossible dream. It's always polluted by liberal discourse. They buy into a larger extended horizon of universality and point out that they need to be part of that larger horizon in all of their particularity. If
1: you see what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you so much. So, I mean, I think the next question is connected with this because, I mean, clearly, like, your first book, Literatures of Liberation, um, discusses contextual universalisms as discourses that arise in particular locations and that posit a broader horizon of... Um, Humanity, And in the process, you craft a more capacious, craft more capacious notions of critical human humanisms than uh, Eurocentric humanisms would allow. Right. So, I mean, clearly, like universalisms were a part of your first book as they are a part of your second book. So I want you to. Comment on the continuities and the divergences between these two projects, right? Thinking especially about the critique about critiques of colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy through contextual universalism. Thank you, Arnab.
2: So, my first book, Literatures of Liberation, Non European Universalisms and Democratic Progress, was, as you say, focused on the idea of universalisms, right? And the way that I approached that idea was through this impulse to rescue the idea of universalism from its dismissal, its wider dismissal in post-colonial studies. Many scholars in the field have rightly, I think, pointed out the violence that universalisms like freedom have done in the colonial contexts, right? So in if you think about Lisa Lowe's classic argument um, in The Intimacies of Four Continents, she says freedom is a vehicle through which certain humans are freed while other subjects, practices, and geographies are placed at a distance from the human. And she's absolutely right about that. And she, she elaborates on this process through beautiful examples and readings. Um, but what Literatures of Liberation was doing was to... Imagine universalisms like freedom differently to suggest that the post-colonial story of universalizing violence was an important part of the story but that it wasn't the whole story and the theory of contextual universalisms was trying in that book to fill in those other missing parts of the story of freedom by arguing that freedom exists in multiple context specific forms all over the world and are often key nodes within projects for decolonization and liberation and you know, this means that the freedom doesn't just go in a one-way direction from the metropole to the colonies, where it enacts violence and is adopted by the colonizers. There are local lineages of freedom at work in these contexts that have long histories of anti-caste dissent. I'm thinking about the protest poetry tied with, with poets like Kabir. Right? and the social movements that, that these traditions have spawned. And thus, rather than dismissing the idea of freedom outright for being inherently contaminated by liberal discourse, what I do in the theory of contextual universalisms is to ask us to separate the linguistic term rooted in its English language political origins and the vast constellation of concepts to which that term is connected within localized fights for social justice right so um Through case studies in colonial India and anti-apartheid South Africa, I showed in that book that ideas like freedom are embodied through an oppositional political engagement in various aesthetic modes with lineages and vernacular folkways and radical social struggle. And Freedom, Inc. follows from this realization that this idea of liberating universalisms is all the more urgent today in an age when regressive nationalisms claim to be acting in the name of freedom and in an age when the term often just refers to market freedom tied to the spread of global capitalism and to the endless consumer choice that it makes possible. So I wrote Freedom, Inc. because I wanted to explore the dominance of this latter iteration of Freedom, Inc. And I also wanted to show that this dominance is not the whole story, just as the liberal enlightenment violence of freedom was not the only story in my first book, right? So... Freedom Inc. argues that there are other lineages of freedom, other conceptual networks of liberation that continue to do valuable emancipatory work in post-colonial India in terms of furnishing critiques of casteism, colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy. For example, the post-liberalization Dalit memoir, and I mentioned Shilpa Raj and Yashika Dat, still contains Ambedkar's composite contextual universalisms of freedom. And all of the strands within the, this lineage are very different from one another, but they're all working together in the service of his larger goal of freeing Dalits from caste. So he famously referred to his Mahartang satyagraha as Dalit's own declaration of independence that embodied ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, right? So he's he's carrying on a lineage that derives from the French Revolution, but adapting it into his own context. And he's doing that alongside Buddhist notions of the sang or community in which he states that we prepare the grounds for our own freedom when we take responsibility for the community through which we are constituted because, and this is a quote from the Buddha and his dharma, self and other are not two, right? And he harnesses this new Buddhism in conjunction with a Marxist analysis of freedom as working class liberation from the ideology of the ruling class. Again, a completely disparate lineage of freedom. And then he has the medieval poet Kabir's anti-caste concept of equality as all of creation or jagat containing the same divinity within right, and therefore everybody's equal. And and then he also has his um, advisor at Columbia, John Dewey's um, pragmatist notion of freedom as individuality in and for the common interest, which asserted that freedom can only exist in a society where the common interest includes the will of gendered, religious and caste minorities, right? Um, so this is a rethinking of freedom as a contextual universalism, as a composite conceptual network of universality derived from the particularities of Dalit experience. And it reveals the the diffuse and internally differentiated but still coherent semantic registers through which concepts like freedom become constituted on the ground, right? So they show that concepts like freedom only acquire their full range of meanings within the conceptual networks, within the contexts in which they're harnessed. So the, this, this conception of, of contextual universalism then also asks us to think about translation differently because instead of a one-to-one translation between an English language term like freedom and its counterpart in another language, instead It involves seeing that the relationship between particular words like freedom and what they mean on the ground in different locals must be reenacted every time. These contextual universalisms also show that the literary forms of the present are an invaluable resource for these alternative conceptual networks of freedom. They exist, and here I'm quoting Said, quoting Gramsci, um, they exist as an inventory of traces that the past has left on the present. And this inventory therefore includes that which oppresses, but also that which arose in response to that oppression. And in doing so, they reveal a decolonizing history of liberation that is buried, but not yet dead.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mukti. This was, uh, I mean, I, for one, am grateful for F- Freedom, Inc., um, mainly because um, when I was reading your first book, I I did encounter uh, the part where you talked about, like, the differences between capitalist and, like, anti-capitalist universalism. So, I mean, I'm grateful for this book, this new book that explores those ideas in a more elaborate way. So, I mean, this was a great um, discussion and I feel that both I I learned a lot and I'm sure like our listeners would l- learn uh, uh, a lot from like these conversations. Uh, so uh, my final question to you is a broader question about like where we are today right so i mean clearly our field uh, of humanities and literary studies is under threat globally right i mean we're thinking about the us or india or like the current like situation like uh, it makes us very it, it, it's a very hopeless world that we live in one can feel right so keeping the things that are happening, uh, ranging from, uh, like, shutting down of humanities programs uh, to, like, a global kind of uh, consensus on genocide and stuff like that. The stuff that we are living through right now. to Like, the rise of right-wing, like, uh, regimes all over the world through, like, persecution of freedom of all of the over the world, right? Keeping all this in mind, can you discuss how does your book and how does your research in general advocate for the humanities and literary studies as a discipline? Why must we preserve it, protect it, and defend That's it? That's such
2: a great question and such a big question as well. Um, and you know, I share your sense of the hopelessness of the world that we inhabit, while also trying to retain some optimism about literature that gives us hope, right? As a way of understanding the world and also of, of doing good within it. Um, and I think we need to advocate for the humanities and for literary studies because, as I've said, they remain an un- invaluable resource through which to understand the present. The world and its power relations are constituted by certain discourses, by certain understandings of history that become dominant, right? Like that of Freedom Inc., like that of chauvinistic nationalisms. And we must have the skill to read these discourses, to recognize them, to be able to See what ends they're working towards and for whom they're working. Only then can we challenge them when those ends are oppressive. So we must be able to recognize also alternative ways of seeing the world and to elevate each other towards a greater and fuller horizon of freedom. And what I'm describing here is the skill to close read the world as a text, and also to close read the text as a reflection of the world. And this is not possible without the humanities and the humanistic training that literary studies makes possible. That skill is necessary to lead to a more just world for everyone within it. And and this is because the analytical practice of literary reading is also a practice of being able to see things from multiple angles and in historical context. Uh, You know, um, Adichie says this in another word when she decries the danger of a single story, right? Um, But when we are able to see things from multiple angles and in historical context, we are also able to avoid the pitfalls of chauvinistic notions of our own identities and our own place in the world. So if I understand... That my Hindu identity is partly the product of a 19th-century nationalist reimagining of the religion in response to colonialism. If I can read and understand the right-wing Hindu nationalist Savarkar as a product and as an architect of this reimagining, I am more likely to pick up on the this kind of violence when I come across it in the present, right? um when people like savarkar are being heralded as as the kind of new fathers of the nation i will be able to historically locate the ideologies that go into the making of such a of such a um elevation of such a figure right i am more likely to pick up on its violence, and I'm less likely to fall for its chauvinistic narrative of being the only single way of being Hindu that is out there. So I'm suggesting that it's not a coincidence that authoritarian regimes throughout history often begin by rewriting or banning texts or historical figures that frame history in multi-perspectival ways. So figures like Ron DeSantis in your native Florida, arnab and Narendra Modi have much to gain through their single story versions of history, which serve a few at the expense of the many. Disciplines which pose a challenge to that single story like the humanities and like the study of literature are the first to become the front lines of culture wars precisely because of the immense power they contain. And I said before, this is why Arundhati Roy is being targeted, right? Because she refuses the single story of the state. We must do all we can to defend these these disciplines these teachers of ways to read and understand the present in light of the past if we want to pursue a better world.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mukti. Uh, I'll just end by saying that I hope... I'm convinced that this new book is such an important contribution to the field and I hope after listening to this episode our listeners would be convinced that they should read the book not just for the love of literary studies and literature for the love of Indian literature but also for like uh Because it's such a powerful, uh, it it offers such powerful ways of thinking about uh, social justice, about empathy, about the world that is uh, under the shadow of colonial politics and, and what we can do to survive in this world. So thank you so much, Mukti. I really appreciate you finding your time for this.
2: Thank you so much, Arnav, for having me as a guest on your show. I very much interrupt it. And I I very much uh, value, value it.